Okay. Hi, I'm your host, John Pope, and this is episode number six of 100% Podcast. Today, I'm honored to have a former Navy SEAL and the CEO of Elite Meet, John Allen, on the podcast. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Um, so, John and I met at one of his Elite Meet events, and um, I was so intrigued with what he's doing. He's clearly got a lot of passion behind uh, helping these transitioning Navy SEALs um, find success in the workforce, and, I'm sorry, and other special forces operators as well as Navy SEALs. And uh, just wanted to have John on the podcast today um, to talk a little bit about his backstory and how he came to start Elite Meet. Um, John, one question I'm interested in is how did you decide to become a Navy SEAL? Yeah, you know, I I sometimes tell myself that the reason I became a SEAL is because you know, I'm deeply patriotic, which is true, you know, and, and I wanted to serve my country, which is true. But really, um, it took me years to figure this out because at the time it wasn't really clear why it was happening. But um, the reason I ultimately decided to become a SEAL is because my amateur baseball career that seemed to be taking off uh, was derailed completely by a case of the yips, um, which if you're in the know, having the yips is like, when you have all the talent to, for example, throw a ball to first base, um, but it's like, you, it's like you, your mind plays tricks with you and, like, tells you that, like, you can't. And instead of just, like, not being able to throw, throw to first base, you throw the ball, like, 10 feet above the first baseman, and you, and you can't. You, like, can't do it. It's like this, and it happens. It famously happened to a player on the Yankees back in the 90s named Chuck Knobloch. If you Google yeah. Chuck Knobloch, he is, like, the, he is – what happens when you get the yips? And it happens in baseball because baseball is like, you know, you get to deliver a ball with pinpoint accuracy consistently, and there's a lot of pressure on you to do it. So for me, um, I was excellent baseball player. Uh, by all accounts, probably should have played in college. But in my uh, junior and then senior year in high school, where, like, obviously you really got to really put out if you want to get into a good program in college, um, I fell apart mentally. Like, and I don't even really know why. It was like... I went from being a dominant pitcher, you know, an excellent hitter, excellent infielder, to, like, I couldn't throw to first base anymore. And I, and I, and I couldn't throw strikes anymore. And, you know, in order to be a baseball player, you got to do those things. And um, it was something I wasn't really prepared for, and it really derailed my life. You know, I, I think I took for granted having something that I was both good at and cared about and was really passionate about doing. Um, and then when I, like, kind of embarrassingly so, didn't understand, couldn't explain to anyone why I couldn't throw to first base anymore or throw strikes. It not only ended my career, but it was something I never really could even talk about. It was like this just kind of embarrassing thing that happened that no one could make sense of. Um, and so for a little while in my senior year and then into college, it was like I didn't really know what I was doing or what I wanted to do anymore. Um, but luckily, I, you know, through my mom, actually, she, she knew a couple of Navy SEALs. Um, and, you know, I just, I was lost. I felt like I didn't have purpose in life. And my mom was like, you know, you should go talk to these guys. Um, not because she wanted me to be a Navy SEAL, but she thought that talking to people that had done something pretty incredible would be good for me. And so I, I ended up meeting with these two guys um, and was just, like, blown away by just literally being in their presence. I mean, I didn't know exactly what went into being a SEAL, but I knew it was really hard to do, and few people could do it. And it was like I... You know, what I lost when I had the yips, um, it's like I, I gained in finding this this new mission, which was, you know, I'm not trying to be a professional baseball player anymore or go play in college even, 
now I'm like, I have this new mission, which is like this huge audacious goal to go become a Navy SEAL. And it was like I picked up right where I left off before the yips derailed my baseball career. And it was like I was putting all the energy I should have and would have put into baseball into training and then ultimately going off to train to become a SEAL. Um, and once you, I mean, I, I, I say this to people about what it was like to kind of have this almost like epiphany of like, now I'm going to go become a SEAL. It was like I couldn't not do it. It, it became such an important thing for me uh, that, again, I couldn't really articulate at the time, but certainly looking back, it makes sense that I like, was filling that gap that baseball left. Um, once I realized that, like, I was going to go become a SEAL, like, I really wasn't questioning my ability to do it. It was that I, frankly, had to go do it. And yeah, so you made a decision. Absolutely, yeah. And then I did, and then I did, and then I became a SEAL, um, which well, I quite, quite a bit goes into it, but that's, that's what happened, sure. Let me ask you this. So was there time that had passed in between the end? I mean, how much time passed between the end of your baseball career and meeting these Navy SEALs? About two Was this years. right after it high school? So okay. it, was, it was like my, the yips, if you want to pinpoint it, it really took hold in my senior year of high school. Um, and then I met these two Navy SEALs in my end of my sophomore year of college. So you're looking at about two years. Okay. And so you you, uh, you went to college at UMass, correct? Yeah, that's right. UMass Amherst. Perfect, perfect. Um, well, what I mean, you talk about preparing to become a Navy SEAL. I assume a lot of that was, you know, physical training. Were you? I mean, what were you doing during that time to get ready for for buds? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's now. I mean, it'd be pretty easy to just Google like how to get ready for buds, and there's lots of stuff online. Um, and and it's, it's it's certainly more prevalent now, frankly, with having the Navy SEALs have really come into prominence. Um, you know, since the Bin Laden raid in particular. And I was actually at the Buds compound when that happened. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was – this is back in 2008, like eight nine, when I was looking at being a SEAL, there was quite a bit online about becoming a SEAL and kind of what went into it. And the, and the basic gist was like, you know, you have to be able to do tons of pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, run, swim, and climb stuff. And you also just need to be very comfortable in the water – um, and so I spent a lot of my time running and swimming and doing push-ups, pull-ups, and sit-ups. And there's wickets that you need to hit. Like, it's like, you know, in order to even get a contract to even go try out to be a SEAL, you need to you need to hit these very basic numbers. Like I think it's um, – you do this thing called a PST, uh, which is, again, this is before you've even begun training for being a SEAL. This is something you do as a civilian. You go to your recruiter. You're like, hey, I want to be a SEAL. And they're like, cool, take take your PST. You have to have an official test taken, and then depending on how you score, they may or may not even offer you the chance to go try out for SEAL teams. And the PST is you do a 500-meter swim, I believe it is, and then as soon as you finish the swim, you get out, and you go do max push-ups in two minutes. So you have two minutes to do as many as you can. Uh, and as soon as you're done with that, you go right into max sit-ups, uh, as many as you can in two minutes. Uh, and as soon as you're done with that, you go onto the pull-up bar, and it's from a dead hang. You started a dead hang on the on the bar. You do as many pull-ups as you can. Um, again, that's untimed. You do as many as you can. So, And then at the end of that, you go run a mile and a half. Um, and what people don't realize is that, number one, this is like nothing in the scope of how hard Buds is physically. But what you don't realize is there's a reason for the way they position the different things you do in this TST. You, you swim, which exhausts you in a way that you're not really used to doing unless you're a swimmer. And then you're going right into maxing out on something, you know, push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. 
and it really, really gasses you, even if you've trained for it. It's, it, it. There's no way to get around it. You're totally gassed. And then you go run a mile and a half, and all of it is like 100% put out. And so, um, you know, in order to even get in the door, I think you got to swim 500 meters in less than five, uh, 10 minutes. Most guys are doing it in like eight or nine minutes. Usually the benchmark is like 80 to 100 push-ups and sit-ups, um, usually 15 to 20 pull-ups, and then, you know, a sub-nine-minute mile and a half. And that's just to be not even competitive. That's just to, like, put your name, like, throw your hat in the ring. And then when you get to Buzz, it's like you're surrounded by Olympic athletes and, like, D1 athletes. So, like, people are blowing those numbers out of the water. So, so they lots wow. of push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and running. Wow. So when when you let's go back to when you got two buds. How many people were there when the class when buds first started? So at the time that I went to buds, I was part of uh, an initiative uh, through Navy Special Warfare. They were trying to make an additional, I think, 500 seals over the course of I don't know, it was like a couple of years. And so I was a part of like a new wave of bigger buds classes. Um, so the way they did it is, you know, in, in the past, it was like you'd show up to Coronado for training and you'd have, I don't know, like a uh, hundred students would show up as part of a class and then maybe like, you know, 15 to 30 actually graduate at the end of it. Uh, for, for my class, I, again, it, they didn't really know what the numbers were going to be because more people were recruited to be there. There was something like 300 people um, that came to Coronado. Now, they whittled down that group to even form your actual class because there's a hidden part of buds that no one talks about or doesn't really know about, I should say, where there's this in-dock period where you've arrived at the compound, but your class, the beginning of training, doesn't start for about three or four weeks, and they basically, train, they, they quote-unquote, train you for like three weeks as this not real class where they just run you through like what you're going to be doing in first phase, which is like brutal, right, for like three or four weeks, and it's and it screws the people's minds because they're like, oh, my God, the, the, the training hasn't even started yet. And guys are getting, like, crushed. And so all these guys start quitting um, during this kind of fake period. So there's, like, 300 when we arrived. And then it was, like, maybe, I don't know, like 150 or less that actually started first phase. Um, and then, you know, it, it's going to seem ridiculous what I'm going to say. But I think it was only, like, you know, maybe – 30 to 40 that finally graduated, but like that number is a little bit inflated even because the people that actually graduate training because it's so long and so many people get hurt along the way, uh, you have rollbacks and it's very much a part of training. It's normal almost to be rolled. I was rolled for injury and for failing a test um, where you get rolled, you know, to the previous, the, the next class and you kind of go forward with that class. And if you don't screw up again, you can graduate, but you didn't start with that class. You finished with them. So you have this, like, hodgepodge of people that started with, for example, class 285, but they graduate with 286. So the graduating class of 286, it's not just the original members. It's the original members plus the rollbacks. So, like, if you're talking about original members of that 300, I bet it's, like, sub-15 um, that actually graduated from that original pool of 300. Um, but the graduating number of the class, which included rollbacks, is, like, 30, 40, 50, somewhere in there. Unbelievable. Well, you know, it's clear that, you know, to go through that and to succeed, you've got to be extremely physically tough. I'm guessing a lot of the guys that show up are physically tough, but it seems to me that mental toughness would even be more important. You know, you know, you don't, I assume you don't just walk into Bud's knowing, uh, you know, without having done something to prepare you for that. 
Uh, did you know that you were that mentally tough before? Did you have any life experiences that, that taught you that? Or did you learn a lot about yourself during that time? Um, to be honest, some of the, my biggest motivators were uh, – actually, no, my, fundamentally my biggest motivator is I was really kind of like embarrassed about how my, my baseball career wound up, even though no one was like giving me a hard time about it. But personally – you know, I, I knew I had so much potential to be a good baseball player, and who knows how far I would have gone. Clearly not far if I fell apart in high school, but, you know, physical, you know, talent. I felt like I had it, and, you know, it just killed me that I went from being someone that people expected to be very successful in baseball to, like, yeah, I don't know what happened to him. Who knows? He fell apart. And I, I just didn't want to be a guy that, like, blew it. And so when I made the decision to be a SEAL, it was almost like I was choosing something that was, in my mind, bigger and kind of more of a challenge than the path I had been on, which was hopefully becoming a professional baseball player. Um, and so it allowed me to kind of shoot for the stars a little bit. And, like, because I had, screw, you know, quote-unquote screwed up with baseball, it's like I felt like an underdog going to buzz. I felt like even though they were totally disconnected, i.e. my baseball career being relatively short and then going and trying to become a SEAL, um, you know, it's like I went into buds feeling like, you know, I can either succeed at this and it's going to kind of wipe away, you know, my my failed baseball career, you know, or if it, if I go the way that statistics say I will, which is I won't become a SEAL, I'll be proud that I went and tried something really hard. And so, but to be honest, it like sickened me to think about coming home uh, if I quit SEAL training, you know, because it was too hard. And having to face my peers and my family again, like, here's John, he failed something else. And so it actually became, like, I mean, borderline, like, I would have died in training. I, I couldn't face the, the, the pain, really, of staring down my peers and family being like, yeah, I, I quit. So um, I think going in, I had a pretty good sense that I was not going to be someone that quit well before I knew how physically or, or mentally difficult it was going to be. I definitely had chosen to stay, even though I didn't, again, know what I was getting myself into. I couldn't control if I got hurt along the way. I knew that that could happen. I could be pushed out of training because I got hurt. But I, I definitely made a choice. And, and oftentimes when you talk to the fields that graduate, um, they'll tell you the same thing, that they, you know, they, they went in and knew that they were not going to quit. They didn't know if they'd succeed but they know that they were not going to be the reason they fell out of training. And so I definitely had that in mind. Gosh, there's so many parallels between that and, and business and life in general is, you know, number one, your greatest success is coming off, um, coming off of a failure, you know, and using that as a motivator. Number two, not quitting. Uh, yet another example of, um, you know, what you can do when you've made a decision to achieve something and, and you refuse to quit. Um, you know, what about your time during the SEALs? How long did you spend uh, as a Navy SEAL? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess this is probably a good segue into what I'm doing now because my career, I thought my career was going to go one way. I mean, you put in, I put, as does everyone else, it isn't like I'm unique, but I put in so much effort to just become a SEAL and so much so much struggle really goes into earning your trident, the insignia you wear in your chest. Um, that, you know, by the time I arrived at a team, and it takes over two years from the time you just show up to training, um, you know, I was, I was pretty sure that this would be the thing I did for, you know, 20 years. It, it, 
it seemed like that's what I would do. It really wasn't something I, I wasn't thinking about when I'm going to get out. It just seems so far off in the distance. Um, but uh, so the, the, what happens is I, I get to a team in Virginia, um, and initially, you know, we were told that we were going to go to South America on our first deployment. And, and to be honest, it's, it's like a huge letdown, you know, because you do all this training, and, and frankly, you don't want to go just train. You like to go, you know, do your job in a war zone. That's kind of what you've been designed to do. And up until, like, right before we're supposed to deploy to South America, um, you know, we're, that's all we're tracking. We're going to go to South America. We're going to train the guys in South America, and that's that. And then, like, two weeks before we're supposed to go, we get told that we're going to actually go to Afghanistan. And it, it just was this change that was abrupt. And they're like, yep, total change of plans. Your platoon's going to Afghanistan. you got two weeks. And it was like hitting the lottery. It was like everything is going right in my career. It's like I managed to get here. First team I get to, we're going, to de- we're going on deployment to a war zone. Um, and so we deployed to Afghanistan. And, and frankly, by all accounts, it was exactly what I thought it would be. Um, the deployment itself. I mean, it, it wasn't like the heydays of, you know, the early invasion of Iraq, which I wasn't a part of. But, you know, even though it was in 2013, we're in Afghanistan, it was very, what I'd call, you know, kinetic. You know, we were absolutely doing the job that you think you're going to do as a Navy SEAL. And it was exhilarating and it was, it was, it was terrifying. It was, it was a lot of things. Um, and by the end of this deployment, uh, about five months into it, I mean, I, I was, I really felt like I had established myself as a new Navy SEAL. I was very, very into my work. And um, we, we went out on this mission um, that went totally sideways. Uh, we were ambushed. Um, you know, no, no Americans were, were killed. Uh, there was, you know, there was quite a few Afghans and, and, and whatnot that were shot. Uh, but it kind of prompted this fairly epic day-long rooftop-to-rooftop, building-to-building firefight with the enemy. Um, and by the end of the night, it was like it had been about, you know, six hours of pretty intense fighting. Um, and it was like the enemy had just vanished. And they actually had tunnels that were, you know, they dug in between buildings. And we were in a very urban part of Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, you know, they just kind of vanished. It was like this bizarre thing where we, you know, all day we've been fighting and getting shot at, and now they're gone. And we were kind of broken into different, because they're called fire teams, little small teams. Um, and there's only, you know, 20 some odd of us. But we're spread around the city, and I was with my fire team. Um, and a drone overhead picked up a group of people sitting with, um, with guns that were, you know, clearly positioned in a way that they were hiding from us. And, you know, they dropped their infrared spotlight on them. So under night vision, you can see the spotlight. It looks like, you know, God's shining a flashlight on the ground. Um, and like, hey, hey, there's guys right here with guns. And so we look over, and, and we can't see them. We're obscured by buildings. And so our fire team decides we're going to go over and check it out. Um, we thought that the spotlight that, 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 the, that the, uh, the drone had cast down was on a position that we could go to and could kind of position ourselves where we could look over this wall and look across this field and see the people that apparently had guns. Um, but it turns out when we walked over to this, this spotlight that the spotlight was on the people with guns. And it just got miscommunicated. And so when we arrived at this spotlight, we, we came up to this little wall thinking we're going to peer over it and look across this field and, and kind of get a sense of what we're looking at. And we're looking over the wall, and there's seven people crouched with guns on the other side of the wall. And they saw us, we saw them, and before long, grenades were coming over the wall to our side 
because they were holding grenades with the pins out exactly for this moment if they were discovered and they didn't hear us coming up because we snuck up to the wall and so in a very short period of time you know it goes from calm and figuring out what's next to two grenades have come over the wall one lands next to me and detonates um and it just was like pure chaos and so uh, it, it, it obviously affected everybody. There were six of us. It knocked me unconscious. A bunch of guys went down. Our medic ended up really saving the day, uh, you know, put tourniquets on me, saved my life. Um, but, you know, at the end of this mission, I was, you know, me and another guy were medevaced out of country because our injuries were severe enough, uh, sent to Germany where all combat injuries go, uh, and then eventually sent back home to Virginia. And, um, you know, I, I walked away with my limbs. It was a, a very close call, but, um, you know, I, I came home feeling like even though that had been a very close call, I, I felt like this is really going to be good for my career. I really cut my teeth as a SEAL now. Uh, but, frankly, it, it had such an enormous impact on, on my wife, the, the fact that it was a close call injury. And my family, too, my, my mom and dad, it was like the sexiness of the job was, like, in an instant gone when my wife is, like, packing this, four inch by four inch deep hole on my hip, you know, every day as I'm like recovering. And she's like, how in the world are we going to do this for the next 10, 12 years? Like, I can't do this. Like, this is not the life for me. Um, and frankly, you know, it, it had me thinking about it too. I mean, it, it, it definitely stays with you when you feel a grenade land next to you and you think you're going to die. Um, so it prompted a, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out of the military. I'm not going to do a career. And I had four years. I had four years till my contract was supposed to end. Um, and so I started prepping, and I'm like, you know what? When I get out, I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to become a consultant. Um, but in early 2017, uh, you know, I was supposed to get out, or so I thought, in 2018. In early 2017, I'm told by my command that there's been a mistake made on my enlistment contract. Effectively, you know, my contract was going to expire early uh, with no rhyme or reason to it, just an unfortunate thing, and the recourse was, Either you can re-enlist right now, or in eight weeks you're going to be out of the military. And I had I was expecting about two years of, of runway, almost two years, and then I was going to go to B school and I was going to go become a consultant, and all that you know the thought around that route was gone because now I had eight weeks until I was getting out, and I needed a job. And frankly, re-enlistment wasn't an option because, like I mentioned, the decision to get out was a heavy one. It was not a you know, maybe we'll stay in. It was like, nope, we're getting out because of this really specific thing, and that's that. That's why we're staying together. This is our plan, and it was like everything got screwed up. Short version of what happens next is I needed to find a job. I connected with this guy named Jordan on LinkedIn. Never met him before. Uh, former investment banker turned entrepreneur living in New York City. Um, he initially was kind of helping me out with my, you know, job search, which, frankly, to call it a job search was a stretch. I was just like, totally hysterically panicked about what the heck I was going to do next. Um, and, you know, it started as I'll help you with your resume and, you know, help you with interview skills turned into why don't you just come to New York and meet some people in my network. You know, I'm well connected with some consultants and, you know, you can talk to them and you can talk to some people in finance and who knows, maybe someone will offer you a job. Um, and so I said, well, I'm going to round up some of my, my, my peers that are leaving the teams and other special operations units. Um, they may not be in an eight-week spiral like I am, um, but certainly because of the nature of this job, which is very head down, very like you are not part of the civilian world, even though you live in the civilian world, you, you live and breathe Navy SEAL. It's like no one has a clue what they're going to do when they get out. 
And oftentimes you get out very abruptly. And so I'll round up some people that I know could probably use this type of exposure and we'll go to New York. We'll have this networking event. Um, and, uh, you know, sure enough, we, we host this, this random event with 20 veterans meeting 25, you know, people from private equity, from, you know, some of the big firms in consulting, management consulting, and five of the 20 veterans were offered jobs this, this night, and two accepted and, and took a job with a boutique consulting firm called Resourcive, and it kind of prompted us to say, you know, why not do more of these things? I mean, they're not like earth-shattering. This is not a new concept hosting networking events, but maybe there's something to be said for putting a focus on, on a community that, frankly, is misunderstood and needs a lot of help, which is a special operations community. And we did 24 events after that one. We went from being kind of this one-off event to being a fairly sophisticated nonprofit that has a recruiting process, that has, you know, a vetting process. We have lots of data to back up that we're being quite successful in, in our mission to get operators and fighter pilots jobs and good jobs. And I'm doing it full-time. So that is my long roundabout way of saying my, my time in the teams and to where I am now. John, thank you so much for sharing your story. That was amazing. Um, a couple things that stuck out to me. One, you know, you mentioned that when you started looking for a job, you know, you were in a, I think you said you were in a frenzied panic. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's crazy that, you know, someone that is, you know, taking a grenade, you know, to their legs would feel that way. And I, But I assume that's probably a pretty common, you know, sentiment among among these guys that are getting out. Um, would you say that's the case? It is. I mean, what I, what I tell both the people that want to join Elite Meet as a veteran and what I tell employers is like, look, you know, we, and I'm saying we very broadly, I'm kind of talking about America, um, you know, we like to put, um, you know, qualities like integrity and accountability and, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole host of things that we typically label veterans as having, and it's always a positive thing. You know, like, you can trust the veteran to basically get the job done. It's more or less the sentiment. Um, I think that what's, what, what's lost in that phrase is why that happens. And it's not because that's the way the military makes it happen. It's because culturally that is a, it is a byproduct of the culture within the military, which is truly team first. You second and F you if you think otherwise. In fact, we'll, we'll push you out if you think otherwise. That mentality, that culture of team first, it's like on steroids in, in a SEAL team, for example, because you have such a small group of people doing such an enormous job that if you're not contributing every day to the team's effort, you're out. And I mean that literally. You're out of the team. They do peer evaluations every month at your command, if your peers anonymously rank you as a poor performer, that's grounds to dismiss you from the team. So, so like, everyone's quick to say all veterans have this kind of accountability trait, this kind of willingness to get the job done, uh, but what's lost is this really, it's, it's a cultural thing, and that cultural thing is, is really on steroids in the teams. And so when you're talking about transitioning out, here's a group of people that have truly, truly been, like, conditioned to believe that they are only as good as, you know, their team members. And that's a great quality. It's a terrible quality when you're trying to get a job. It's a terrible quality when you mix that with the fact that you've had millions, literally millions of dollars in training that you feel is arrogant 
to talk about, that you're not going to talk about all your training and all the things that make you so appealing to an employer. You're not going to talk about them because you don't want to pull, you know, you know, the, the, the kind of achievements and accomplishments of others. So you have this group that just totally shoots themselves in the foot, but they think they're supposed to. And there's, and there's no one telling them that they shouldn't be doing that because, again, the culture is so strong. So we kind of serve as like the, hey, guys, when you're looking for a job, whether you do it or we do it on your behalf, because we definitely do this too. We do this whole like we'll advocate on behalf of individuals in our member in our membership, and we can allow them to maintain their humble posture, so to speak. Um, but either way, like people don't know who you are or why you're valuable. Period. You have to tell them. That's the way the world works, and so that's a huge barrier to overcome. Huge. Interesting. Well, you know, as an employer myself, and um, you know, someone that. Um, any, any of the other employers that are listening to this podcast today, I'm sure they're wondering, you know, how do they get in touch with these guys? How do they get in touch with you? Um, you know, who wouldn't want a guy like this on your team? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that, that's 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 <laughs> when I hear this. I mean, how could you not want to hire one of these guys? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's so just to, to probably to get to the question you're going to ask, which is how to get involved, how to, how to reach out. Um, if you go to our website, which is just elitemeat.us, uh, we, the, doc, the .com was sold, so we got the, the .us. Um, you can go down, and, and there's actually a uh, there's a contact form that typically people will use. And it's we've left it kind of ambiguous because, to be honest, we're getting we get quite a few requests from people all the time, and we we are not in the business of taking every single employer ever that wants to hire this group and turning around and, and, and pushing it to our group. We have a very small group. We're talking, you know, sub 200 people that we've hand chosen that are actively seeking a job. We have more than that that are in the membership. But, I mean, I know our members on a first-name basis. Like, we genuinely know who our people are. We know what they're interested in. And so there's an enormous amount of vetting that needs to happen in order to even get an opportunity in front of our guys. Um, so we ask that people are going on our website, they fill out the contact form, just say, hey, you know, I have this opportunity I'd like to potentially, you know, hire through your group. Um, the, the real sweet deal here is that it doesn't cost you anything. They're, they're, we aren't a placement firm. We're fundamentally not a recruitment firm. We are a nonprofit. We, we absolutely solicit donations from some of our employers, but, I mean, that, that is not the way we work. We don't do the you owe us this so that we give you that. It's, if you prove to us, that your opportunity is worth us putting in front of our members, we'll do it because we care about fit because we're in the, we're in the business of collecting testimonials, not in the business of collecting fees. So go to our website. You can contact us there. Also, I'm, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, John Allen. It happens to be like the most generic name ever, but I'm sure if you search with Elite Meet connected to my name, you can find me. Reach out to me there, uh, and we can put you in touch with our, with our people and maybe see if there's a match. Perfect. Thanks so much, John. I'm going to post this information on the podcast so they can find the link there as well. Um, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast today. It was uh, inspiring, and um, I hope that uh, this leads to more opportunities for for you and your organization. Thanks, right, thanks so much, a lot, John. John. Take care.